Hello, and welcome to the Rehydrate interview series, a forum for discussion of Leah Shin's Remembrance Verse Past series. In each episode, I normally speak with a guest about their thoughts and experiences on reading the series, but this episode is going to be a little bit different. Spoiler warning for listeners, this episode will contain spoilers for all of the three-body problem, the Dark Forest, Death's End, and any other media we happen to discuss. I will include chapter markers in case you want to skip over those sections. My name is Dan, and today I am joined by Adam. Hi, Adam. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. I want to preface by saying I have not read The Remembrance of Earth's... Uh, <laughs> I don't even know the title. The Remembrance of Earth's Past Trilogy, because I'm a translator of some of Yotzessin's shorter fiction, or have been primarily, and I didn't want the style of Joel or Ken's translations to influence my work. So if you're looking for insight about those books in particular, I have absolutely nothing to give you. <laughs> and which which books did, did you translate or which stories? So I did short stories primarily. Um, the two that have been published, uh, one was called Cannonball. That was in uh, The Wandering Earth, which was the title of a story in the book that was later made into a blockbuster movie in China. And the second was called The Village Teacher, and it opened a more recent collection called To Hold Up the Sky. I think it was called Hold Up the Sky in the UK. And for that book, I also translated the author's foreword. Cool. Well, thanks again for joining us. Yeah. Speaking of the movie, since you bring it up, did you did you just see the movie, or do you do you just not, or do you read the other stories in the in the collections? Or I know no. you said you don't read the Remembrance. Absolutely not. No. Uh, <laughs> occasionally. So one of my current projects is translating some some essays of of Leo's nonfiction essays, and he makes reference to a lot of particular contents of his stories and books and. My general tack is to get directly in touch with the translator and say, hey, do you remember how you, how you rendered something? But no, I, I, don't, I don't. It's too embarrassing to read these for pleasure. <laughs> so going back um, you know, to the beginning, how did, you, how did you learn Chinese? And like, how did you become a translator? Like, how does that was interest to you? With, uh, which one should I start with? Uh, how did you learn Chinese? How did I learn Chinese? I started very late, actually. Uh, I, I went to Oberlin College in Ohio. Uh, where there's an excellent East Asian studies department. I'd had some previous experience with Japanese. I spent a semester or summer, something there, uh, on a homestay in high school. And I continued Japanese in college and picked up Chinese as well and found I had a yuanfan or a destiny with mm. Chinese. It was just really easy for me for some reason. Interesting. Uh, and, la I, and later found it was it's actually very difficult. But but that initial burst of confidence carried me through two years of class and then eventually to Beijing where I bummed around um, from essentially my graduation in 2005 until the Olympics in 2008 when it became much harder to get a visa for a bum like me. <laughs> so at that point, I moved back to the States and I began teaching secondary school Chinese to uh, secondary means, I think includes junior and high. I, 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 I'm a teacher and I don't know. And I did that for 10 years, and then I began translating. And how did you get into translating? Did you, is this something you wanted to do, or you just needed to pick up side work? Uh, I didn't need side work, but I, uh, teaching had, had become, for various reasons that I'm really, really happy to go into if you want, mm. <laughs> I, it was unfulfilling. Through our, I was teaching at a private school in Manhattan, and then our, our school librarian, the middle school librarian, uh, was in touch with 
my current client, whose stock and trade at the time were children's stories. And she, you know, she got us in touch and she, she said, this guy's perfect for doing these, you know, these, these tiny, simple, some were very charming stories for young learners of Chinese. And I, I think they're charming in their own right, not as educational stuff too. And so once I'd gotten three or four of those in, they said, are you interested in slightly longer form stuff? This was in 2016 or 2017. And I said, yes. Hmm. And so they sent me a list of Liu Tzu-Sin stories uh, with some recommendations. They said, pick, you know, two or three of these. We recommend the village teacher we think is going to be a hit. Uh, so I picked the village teacher and I picked Cannonball because the Chinese title is preposterous. The Chinese <laughs> title is it translates literally to something like Huge Earth Cannon. <laughs> oh, did you pick the title then? Or was that title uh, like the English title? Yeah, in fact, there was an, there was a, a previous English translation by Holger Nam, um, whose translation was quite adequate, and good even. I, <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> it's it's my idiom to sound catty, but I really don't try to, and I don't I, I don't I don't mean anything catty. I think he's an excellent translator, but for various reasons that have to do with rights, I imagine they wanted the story retranslated, and so they brought me on, and I saw the Chinese title. I said that that won't do. <laughs> Uh, and so I picked Cannonball because, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know how, did you read the story? I did. Yeah. You did read the story. Um, yeah. You know, it's like you're doing a cannon, but you're, it's like into a pool. Yeah. I thought it was, I thought both, I mean, I read both of them. Um, I hadn't read them previous to, to speaking with you, but I had, I read both of them and I thought, yeah, both of them were super interesting. Uh, we can get more into the story if, if you'd like, especially like, yeah, Cannonball. I thought, I, I not only haven't read um, Rumors or Past Years, but like in that, that series, it, there's a common theme of hibernation and kind of jumping into the future. So it's kind of, I don't know, like when this was written in relation to those, but it's, it's very interesting to see for me, like, oh, these concepts kind of carry throughout all of his work and it has kind yeah, of a style. For sure. So he, as late as, you know, 2004, 2000, I'm, I'm actually looking at an essay I'm translating right now that was published in, yeah, 2004, where he says kind of, kind of ironically or presciently, I'm talking about Liu Tzu-Sin here. He, he says, you know, I, American sci-fi began with magazines and then gave way to longer form works. Um, he says, I wonder whether Chinese sci-fi will do the same thing. So uh, obviously this is before he wrote any of his long works, except I think for Ball Lightning. I don't know if you've read that one. I haven't yet, but I know of it. Okay. Uh, Joel also translated that one and he did an excellent job with it. Um, he says, then my sense is that we'll need one or two uh, novels that sell a million copies before the market for long form works take off takes off in China and then we'll need film adaptations and then we can we can have a real qualified group of writers producing that kind of work. Uh, you said you had lived in China for a while. Did you know about uh, the assistant before you started doing his work? Like I, no. I get the impression he's very popular and very, very kind of famous in China, but I don't know like what level. In 2008, when I left China, which, which were the, the year of the Olympics, as I noted, mm. I think sci-fi was still a, a sort of an insular pursuit in China. And I was definitely not connected to that scene. I see. So no, I didn't hear of him when I was in China. I, I heard of him first, I think, when I want to say Obama tweeted about three body problem. Yeah. He, he, and every, every book has like uh, Barack Obama says wildly imaginative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think he only said that once. Like yeah. But it's not all three books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, that piqued my interest, but, but still I, I, I didn't read it, and I still haven't. Have you have you read other sci-fi, or are you interested in that genre at all? I tend not to like fiction that 
I tend I tend not to be drawn to fiction that centers more around ideas than around characters. Obviously, that's not that's not a feature of all sci-fi, and it's not even a feature of all of Dostoevsky's sci-fi. I think he had a huge change of heart. In fact, um, in the early two thousands, where he began to feel characters really were kind of central to not just telling a good story, but as the as the um, you know, without without these scientists, these 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 flawed characters, science wouldn't happen. Um, and I think I think that's a that's a link that has per, become progressively more important to him. And I think his prose has improved markedly as a result. And by all accounts, the uh, three body problem is is good writing. Yeah, and I think specifically like that series, like it gets progressively better on the character front. You know, so like right. I think a common criticism of the first and second book are that just characterization is not as important um, as the scientific concepts. Where I think in the third book they kind of, he's a better job of marrying those two things together. He says that explicitly in so many of, in so many earlier essays he wrote from the early two thousands, late nineteen ninety you know nineteen ninety eight ninety nine. Hmm. He has what are essentially manifestos that are like I do not I don't I don't give a shit about the characters. <laughs> like these are the sci fi. You know, if I do any characterization in in my books, it's because readers want that. Um, but that's not the kind of stuff I want to write. Really, for me, the core of science fiction is is science. And so he says, like, memorably, like, Ball Lightning, the main character in that book is Ball Lightning. Right. <laughs> He's like, and though there, happen, there happens to be a protagonist and then another slightly crazier protagonist and this really militant military researcher... He's like, they, they all are there just to offset the ball lightning, which is the most fascinating thing in the story. And so stuff like that is, it's, it's, it's hard for me. I've just never met ball lightning. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to, what it, yeah. what, it, what it dreams about. Yeah. I think that's, that's fair. That's a, a fair thing to, to, to want in your, your stories, right? Is like more, more characterization. And so, yeah, I think, I think that's probably a general, general theme in sci-fi or in some sci-fi that like they care more about like the big scientific concepts. And I mean, God bless him for it. <laughs> uh, and I don't think any other, uh, I can't think of other literature that, do, that does that, that makes that makes science, which is an important thing to know, obviously, uh, so fun. What genres uh, are, are you into? So I'm, I'm, a, I'm really into period pieces and like historical fiction. Okay. And uh, literary fiction too, but, but I have a soft spot as, as far as genre goes for historical fiction. And that's, that's what I'm working on now. Which uh, which periods and like is it Chinese historical fiction or? Yes. Okay. Uh, this is all Chinese historical fiction, and there are two periods. The work I'm currently on uh, takes place in the Tang Dynasty, which was you know roughly 600 to 800 AD, something like that. So it's very early history, but it it takes place primarily in the in the capital of the Tang Dynasty, a city called Chang'an, hmm. uh, which is called Xi'an today. Uh, and that was a very kind of cosmopolitan, strange, tolerant, sophisticated place. Uh, and so I'm really drawn to this depiction of a history that I think is very unfamiliar to Western readers. Like, yeah, there are a lot of like Zoroastrian characters in the book. And I, I don't remember the last time I uh, encountered <laughs> a Zoroastrian, a prominent Zoroastrian character in, in genre fiction. So when you were in China, did you get a chance to visit these sites? Uh, I did. Uh, so, so, yeah, I also, yeah, I went to Xi'an myself. Um, oh, you've uh, been to China? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been to China a bunch of times, actually. Uh, my oh, my dude, wife is Chinese. You're, yeah. you're holding out on me. 
yeah. yeah my Where do you is, go? Uh, well, she's from Shanghai, so we've been to Shanghai okay. a bunch of times. But I've been to Beijing. I've been to Xi'an. Uh, we went to Hangzhou. We went to Chengdu. Where else did we go? I think that's about it. But mostly this time we just stay in Shanghai. But like every mm-hmm. time I've gone like four or five times now, and so every time we go, we kind of try to go somewhere else. <laughs> that's fantastic. What other what other places in China have you been to? And which is your your favorite parts of China? Oh, I've been all over the place. So I spent all, almost all my time in Beijing, but I, I, mm. I before you know current travel restrictions and, and and tensions, I was able to visit Tibet. I was able to visit Xinjiang, which I loved. Um, oh yeah. I went to Inner Mongolia more than once. Oh yeah. Uh, which is just a spectacular place. Where I else? Always, yeah, I always thought like Xinjiang would be really interesting. Um, I mean, like my favorite city and all of the, the part, favorite thing I did in China was go to Xi'an and I really liked the food there. <laughs> and so like, yeah. I was like, well, I really like to see like the even more authentic uh, Xinjiang food. And so whenever we go to anywhere in China, we always try to go to, like a Xinjiang restaurant. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Getting back to translating in general. Um, so do you have any like interaction with the actual author when you're doing these things or is it totally separated? I have no direct interaction. Um, as I'm as I'm working on a piece, I will send questions to my client that occasionally are as simple as like, I have no idea what this what this passage <laughs> means. <laughs> Which used to be, you know, when I was beginning, it was really embarrassing. But I, I, I think it's a I think it's a universal I, I hope it's a universal problem. <laughs> the translators I've spoken to all say, yeah, like you know, we get in touch with someone and we don't know what something means. Do you find that even particularly harder in in sci-fi genre? Because like I'm thinking of Village Teacher specifically when they, they switch over to like the alien culture and there's a lot of like very specific scientific concepts that we get into. Is that much harder to translate and that's when you need to get notes or like how do you go about no. that? The science is the easiest part of science fiction as a translator because you can research it. Hmm. You know, like the, if you look up, I said this in a, in a, in a previous press junket, but I, I stand by it. Uh, you know, if you look up how to say cold fusion in Chinese, there's there's one answer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and if you Google the characters for cold fusion, then the first result on Google is, is the Wikipedia page for cold fusion. So that is relatively simple, you know, compared to some very subtle way of saying I love you, but it's complicated. Yeah, I remember in the village teacher, there's like one part where the, the aliens or the whoever people were talking in like a, a way they're using um, some some special way of communication mm-hmm. that wasn't like, it's not like, it's obviously not using, because like they make fun of our, the way we talk later on. Right. Uh, and they, they, they have some other means of communication. Is that also kind of a direct translation? It was like a smart field. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I, I, I probably should have written it down. But yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Using their smart field, using some kind of field. Yeah, they're communicating by means of some obscure something-based medium that we have no access to. I don't. I, uh, Smartfield was a pretty literal translation of that. Actually, it was like a Zhihui Chang. I'd have to look again at the text, but it it, it didn't require any special effort because hmm. there is no such thing as a smartfield. So you can right. call it whatever you want. <laughs> Presumably, these books are also, or these stories are also translated into other languages. So, say like German, I know nothing Japanese about that. But yes. Okay, so you never communicate with the other translators either? No, 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 no. No. <laughs> I, I barely communicate with you. It's been a fight to be able to communicate with the other English translators because these, I don't know, we're, it's, it's very solitary work and we're often kind of siloed and there's there, the community is quite small, but still there's work to be done in kind of bringing us together as, I don't know, like a, a, a cohesive community of people who are trying to like improve the game and increase the market. 
I think we work pretty substantially on our own with some with some extraordinary exceptions. So there's there's no like conventions or anything that you guys all attend. Conventions. <laughs> Or you know, back when we could meet together in person, you you could barely you could barely arrange a tennis doubles match, <laughs> though there's improvising up in covers. So so you mentioned a couple of times that you know you don't like to be influenced by other translators. Like, what are some ways right. that you could be influenced, or that maybe you have been, and that you've tried to avoid? Like maybe like you're learning from past mistakes or anything. Like, what are ways that that you could and you want to avoid being influenced? I, I think my initial impulse to avoid other translators' work is kind of knee-jerk. And just the feeling like I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to do this on my own. It's, uh, my, uh, my voice will, uh, will be in there. My voice will be in there. Yeah. Um, that's a necessary artifact of translation, and it's why of every, of every classic book, every book in the canon, there are, you know, 20, 30 translations or whatever. I think... A big part of it is there are certain turns of phrase in Chinese and certain sentence structures that are not so effective rhetorically in English. Are those like the the forward phrases? Yeah, I mean those those are problem those are yeah, very problematic because they they often have some metaphorical content that's a lot deader. I think in Chinese than in English, and so if there's a you know four character phrase, uh, they're called they're called cheng yu. Right, right. If, if, if you know if a cheng yu refers to your heart, for instance, it's really tempting to put the word heart in your translation. But I think if you use the word heart too often in English, uh, it kind of che- it, it makes your prose sound kind of cheap or or schlocky or sentimental. Sure. Um, yeah. And Chinese just has a greater tolerance for that. There's that, but really what I'm referring to is Chinese sentences love. This is so technical. You can stop me as soon as I begin to bore you. Oh, no, I'm interested in technical. <laughs> oh, good. So uh, Chinese sentences love to pivot on time and place phrases. So a sentence, um, you know, in a, in a kind of a- active, like action-filled paragraph, a part of the narrative would begin with like, just at that moment, or like suddenly. Or like on the other side of the room, which is acceptable in English. Don't get me wrong, but every Chinese sentence could conceivably begin like this. And if you if you copy that structure too faithfully, it really begins to jar in English. And I think some translators. So you asked how other translators might adulterate my work. I think some translators do excellent things. You know, do do kind of a, a, a really interesting kind of rhetorical judo. Hmm. in taking that structure, using it literally, and somehow making it effective in English. And I'm not talented enough to do that. So I just, I put the time phrase at the end, like we, <laughs> we do in English. Uh, and I don't want to be influenced to do otherwise because that would be demoralizing and would decrease my output. Another question I have for you is that I have a very, 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 very limited uh, knowledge of Chinese and Chinese characters. But well, as I told I, you before the interview, your pronunciation is solid. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but so sometimes what I do is I'll, I'll kind of have to go through like this, like when I'm doing preparing for the podcast, I want to like want to look at like what the original text looks like. And I'll have to like, right. like kind of peck, hunt and peck my my the 40 characters or whatever I know in Chinese. Um, but one thing I did notice was that um, and for some more like esteemed characters, like our older characters, they'll be referred to as Nin, you know, as the mm-hmm. uh, right. for the listeners, it's the the more like honorific way or the more formal way to uh, to address people in, in Chinese. The question I have for you is how there's no really way to do that in English. 
So how mm. can you like kind of translate those concepts between uh, Chinese and English to kind of convey the same feeling of of honor or or reverence? Well, again, it's I, I think I think conveying the feeling is a really good way of putting it. So instead of you know mean, obviously you can't translate word for word, right? Um, but when we're speaking to someone we respect in English, we tend to adopt a different register in our speech. Maybe it's a little more formal. It's it's very context dependent in English as well. So if it's you know your grandparent, for instance, I don't know. Maybe you maybe you would you would pick gentler words or gentler phrasings, or maybe you'd hedge a little more. Maybe your tone of voice, which is something you can't modulate too much in Chinese, or your mm. tones change. Maybe you would talk in a slightly more submissive way. Like right now, I'm up talking, and it conveys a kind of deference that I think, on the level of a sentence or paragraph, can convey with some fidelity how mean and other honorifics feel. A mm. big one, um, a similar a similar problem that shows up in, in Liu's work and, and a lot of other work is that Chinese loves to put people's titles next to their names. When I was teaching, for instance, my co-teachers, I would I would call them Laoshi. I'd call them by their by their sing, and then I'd say Li Laoshi. Even when I was speaking directly to them, which is kind of hard to imagine in in an American high school, teachers that are in the faculty lounge fighting each other for the, for the Keurig machine and calling each other, you know. <laughs> Mr. Smith. Yeah, or like yeah, teacher teacher Smith, right? <laughs> teacher Smith, even better. Yeah. <laughs> I think another difficult concept in the, there's a couple that I've I've kind of picked up and and again, my cursory knowledge of Chinese like kind of helps um that with a little bit but like sometimes some of the characters refer to um smaller characters like the younger characters like Xiao or yeah. some of the other characters like like there's a character who has a nickname of Dasher. And so it's like how do not knowing Chinese like how do you understand that i think it's it's a hard balance and then on the other way like chinese also uses um like calling people aunt and uncle or grandfather or grandma even though it's not related they just use those right. terms <laughs> so i guess like how, how do you kind of reconcile that for americans or english-speaking people to more understand these concepts that don't really translate well the, the, i have a i have a, 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 a slightly discursive answer and then i'm going to get to the meteor question I forget who it was, but I read someone who recent uh, someone recently wrote, "White people are the only people on Earth who do not call their parents friends, aunt and uncle." Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> so, which I don't, I don't, I, I haven't done. You know, I haven't read all the research, but think that it's it's very very common. It's not it's not unique to Chinese hmm. um, to do that, and so I think it, I, I like maintaining that when I can, just like auntie and uncle and and terms of affection like that because they're really i think it's to english's detriment that we don't have you know you can either call your your father's friends sir or by their first name or mr something and all of them have these like infelicitous overtones i think right it, um they don't they don't sound intimate and so the question really is how do you convey how do you convey the intimacy of a of a, of a nickname or a term of endearment which in english and in american english especially, I suppose, we, we reserve for very, very close friends and like childhood friends and lovers. And again, it's context dependent. That's my answer to your next three questions. <laughs> it's context dependent. What do I mean? So there's a character in the book I'm translating now who's called uh, Xiaoyi, little, little E, and everybody calls him Xiaoyi. It's not like, you know, just his friends call him Xiaoyi. That's just his name in the in the criminal underworld he inhabits in ancient Chang'an. 
and I have a comment on my draft translation, you know, on the side of the Word document, mm-hmm. that I was in like in like a manic attempt to tr- to try and get his name in English. I have about ninety five different options for what he could be called. They include Lil B, <laughs> Beecham. Uh, <laughs> this goes on and on. So yeah, that's a tough one. I find Xiao especially tough. Especially the way it's spelled in English, you know, for listeners. Oh, my God. Oh, it's like it's almost impossible to pronounce (laughs) if you don't have any background in how to pronounce Chinese words. (laughs) I think, in fact, to build on that, I think I think Liu Liu Tzu just his name is kind of a threshold of the works because it's got every hard pinyin sound. Right. (laughs) Um, So if you can get past the name of the author, then you'll be fine with with Ding Yi. That's a character from Ball Lightning, or I, I don't know who else. He also, yeah, he also shows up in the in the oh, Remembrance does he? Fest. Yeah, yeah. Huh? And actually, Ball Lightning shows up in Remembrance Worth Pass too. So, well, kind of Ball, Ball Lightning, the phenomenon. The concept, yeah, the the scientific concept. It's it's a whole story. Like they kind of mention it in passing one time, and then I guess in the Chinese original Chinese, like Ball Lightning as the concept is actually like uh, like a real plot point, but they removed it for the english translation because ball lightning hadn't been translated to english yet so american or english readers wouldn't have known what that is <laughs> i see they had some energetic editors yeah they, he made a whole uh, uh, joel martin said did, did the second book and he made up a whole new story or i don't know if leishas made it or he made it or they did it in combination but yeah there's a whole new like kind of plot point so they didn't use ball lightning wow yeah <laughs> well that's a shame it's a, it's a very interesting phenomenon you had mentioned a little bit, uh, you kind of touched on um, using Word docs. I'm actually, in, like I said, I'm really interested in the tech, the more technical aspects of, of things sure. in general. So like, what is your actual like technical process for translating work? Do you like literally have like the Chinese uh, text on one, one window and then your Word doc in the other one, you're kind of doing it or like, what, what is like the actual process and how long does it take? Oh, my answer is going to be so. Is it will reveal me as a as a rank amateur. I'm, my process is so <laughs> primitive compared to very experienced translators. Though to be fair, they're generally doing um, more technical documents as well, hmm. and so they really need sort of uh, consistency within the text as they're rendering things. You know, for like legal documents, you can't screw up right. a heretofore or whatever. But I keep a word bank. I keep an extensive glossary for everything I'm working on. Um, that I cross-reference to the text as often as possible. What else do I do? I, my, I use, I use uh, a, a translation software. I think that's standard now. They're getting very good. Uh, I don't know. Have you played with, with uh, any translation software recently? Do you mean like... Uh, I mean like, like Google Translator. Oh, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, yeah, something... so I... Yeah, yeah, so my 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 translation process is often like copying a bunch of Chinese into the Google Translate and like trying to like find like what it means, and then and then I'll I'll go to my wife and ask her like what does it actually mean <laughs> that kind of thing. So totally. I have a I have a complicated uh, translation process <laughs> for my limited right. Chinese. Um, I would say mine mine is not much more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> not much more complicated except for the wife. I strongly recommend using Baidu Translate instead. It's it's stronger than Google Translate currently. And stronger oh, yeah. than that is a program called DeepL. DeepL, okay. Which is just eerie and getting eerier. I use that, I want to say, primi- it, it's, it, it serves more of a dictionary function for me. Mm. It can't catch idioms very well yet. Right. 
but it does a really good job when you have these 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 long Chinese sentences of kind of breaking them into into digestible chunks in English that accord with passable English style, which is really really challenging as a translator because you can go all the way to the end of this page and a half Chinese sentence and finally get to the grammatical subject as opposed to the topic which came at the beginning. And so DeepL does a really good job of rearranging thoughts in a way where you can kind of pick out the corresponding chunks in the Chinese text and begin working from there. So that's something, that's one tool I use among many. I have several dictionaries. I love Pleco. Uh, I don't know if you use that on your phone, but download it. And it is extensive. Just as a pure dictionary, it's a bit very, very powerful. And what else do I use? Uh, I think my, mo my most powerful tool is my strict regimen, uh, which is low tech, but I've, I, I've learned about myself. In the, uh, I've been translating full time now for four years, three and a half years. I cannot produce rendering of some of, of good, uh, a translation of good prose after 1 p.m. Oh, really? <laughs> I keep my mornings completely open. I, I, I don't eat breakfast. I wake up early and I work until 1 p.m. And then I, I screw around however I manage to during the day or, or call Citibank and, and yell at them about overdraft fees. And then I. <laughs> Edit in the evenings. Um, so I find after dinner is my most effective editing time where I can go back and kind of prune what I wrote during the day and look for inconsistencies. So how long does it usually take? Yeah. Like, do, do you have like a page, like, like a page count per day or so? Or like, what, what's the kind of metric that you're kind of aiming for to feel like you're, you're really making like good progress? I never feel like I'm really making good progress. I always feel like <laughs> a month behind. I... Uh, I've gotten faster since I began. I think when I began, I was doing 800 to 1,000 characters on a full day. Mm. Um, and bear in mind, I was teaching then too, so it was really kind of a, a mental shift to go to my Saturday translation cloistering. <laughs> Lock myself up with this text all of a sudden. It's very different from trying to trying to manage a room full of kids. Uh, but now, I'm, I'm, uh, when I'm working and I'm familiar with an author's voice, and I, I know most of the characters in a book, and you know there are very, there are a few surprises left. Mm. Um, I can do fifteen hundred, two thousand, twenty five hundred sometimes. Uh, though that when I've managed to do twenty five hundred, I've been really proud of myself, and then I go back to edit that evening, and I'm like, oh, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I may so, have to do part of this again. So, what is the eight hundred characters? What, what does that turn into, like uh, English wise? Like how many? About how many standard pages or so? I would, I would multiply. It really depends on the source text. Um, yeah. For sci-fi, I would say it's you know it's never quite one to one. The Chinese is always going to be shorter. Hmm. I think in terms of character count, uh, I don't always may not be right, but often. I think it's a, the English. There will be about one and a half times more English words than there are Chinese. I see. Characters in the text. Maybe a little less than that. So, 1,200, 1,300? I see. Did you expect more or less? I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it feels like not very much when you're working on it. And you can go down a, a research rabbit hole as long as you want. You know, you see some phrase and you're like, oh, I want to learn everything about magnified electrons. Yeah, I'm sure, especially in sci-fi, like you, yeah, you look at some Wikipedia article and be like, oh, that's interesting. And you're like, you know, four days later. <laughs> and it feels relevant to the text when you're doing it. You're like, oh my God, if I don't know this, I'm going to, I'm going to screw something up. Yeah. 
Um, and then often you find out in the end it's something speculative to begin with. Hmm. And so, you know, it, the, the research was misleading and you've just wasted your productive hours. So I try not to research at all anymore. I just <laughs> <laughs> grope around in the dark and then fact check later. So when you're translating a story, do you first read the entire story and then translate or you just start, you just start right away? I, I skim the whole story. I don't read it word for word, um, hmm. but I get the main plot points. I get, I get, I try to get the roster of characters. Um, I focus especially on twists. Uh, I want, I want to, you know, be able to foreshadow those effectively because it's a huge pain to go back and like, oh, I didn't catch that reference earlier in the book. Sure. Because um, it requires a lot of. You'd have to go back to the source text a lot to do that. It's not just like monolingual line editing. But generally, I do that by approaching my client and saying, hey, could you tell me who the characters are and why they're important and what? Get, just, get, just give me a list of spoilers. <laughs> um, and that's what I work from. But, but, but smaller, sort of more scene-setting narrative, I try not to read beforehand. I find when I'm sort of amazed by a translation, by, or sorry, not by, by, a, by a description of an environment, that I can carry that better into my writing when I'm actually amazed, when I'm, I'm reading it on the spot and I'm saying, God, that's a, that's a beautiful way to describe a courtyard or um, an artifact of some sort. And so as these details occur to me suddenly as I'm reading the source, I find they take on a, a position of special emphasis in my translation and, and I'm generally happy with that. And can you think, are, are there examples that like you come back to in your mind of like, oh, that this part or this phrase or this concept is really, really hard to translate? Or like, like is there like something, an example you can think of, like this was particularly really difficult to, to deal with? I've, I've blocked most of those out of my mind. <laughs> uh, I mean, tons. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have sense memories of them. I can, I can look in some translations of mine it would, it would take a while um <laughs> but generally those happen when it's not clear who the, the subject or the, or the topic of a, of a passage of narrative is hmm. like you know there's no there's been no pronoun for a while nobody's been named and i just don't know who they're talking about and so you can you can go very far out on a limb thinking it's uh, you know dingy who's lifting his arm and gesticulating and saying something passionately. And then you, you slowly begin to realize it may be someone else. You have no idea. <laughs> and by then you're so far gone. That, uh, the, <laughs> <laughs> you don't know, you don't know quite what to do with the text from there. I mean, you can't erase it. You can't erase it, but it's demoralizing. So you right. <laughs> email your client and you say, who the hell is this talking about? Are there concepts or things that are more culturally sensitive in China versus here that you have to like kind of be more careful about your language around? Uh, I, I think particularly like Three Body Problem opens up with a big section about the Cultural Revolution and the you know kind of the implications of that. So yeah. I, I can imagine I, that's, that's, that's pretty that's, difficult. <laughs> that's that's the one part I read. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I, I saw there was a an excerpt from that in the in Wandering Earth. So maybe it was like right mm. after your story. <laughs> um, Mm -hmm. the, uh, but yeah, like I'd imagine like kind of conveying those concepts uh, in, in a, in a, sen in a culturally sensitive way um, would be pretty difficult. So uh, have you run into those kind of things and like, how do, how would you kind of approach them? You're talking about historically sensitive. Sorry. Can you, can you, can you rephrase a little bit? 
Sure. So for an example would be like, if I was an American writer and I wrote about the, the Trail of Tears or something like that, something that like, right. or slavery or something that like, we're kind of embarrassed about as a country, you know, mm-hmm. that yeah. it, like it, for other people to translate that, like you'd want to like treat it with the, the same kind of feeling that we have. So presumably there's stuff like in China that has the same kind of feeling and maybe the cultural mm-hmm. revolution is one of those things. And there's probably other stuff that China just doesn't like to super talk about. Right. Um, right. So I guess, have you run into those kind of issues and like, how do you, how would you deal with them? Have I run into those kind of, uh, yes, I have. I mean, I think, I think there's a, there's a ongoing struggle in every country. I think it's, it's very pronounced in the U S right now and in China. Um, whether, whether history is, is meant to be, you know, what, what the difference between history and, and like hagiography to what extent the purpose, you know, the people in the U S now are, uh, talking about critical race theory and there are two very strongly opinionated camps about the value of casting a critical light on american history and as far as i can tell one camp is saying no the purpose of history is to is to bolster a, a positive image of the country and there's a similar thing in china. i mean i think i think in china that there is even now i'm i'm it's so sensitive to <laughs> <laughs> to me that I, I don't I don't quite know how to put it, but I, I mean there are, there are a lot of of events in the last seventy years of Chinese history that are s- central to that nation's identity, regardless of how painful they are, and even in some cases because of how painful they are. So do I approach them with sensitivity? How do I approach them with sensitivity? I'll tell you what I don't do. I try in those cases. I try to translate as literally when I as, as soon as a passage is is clearly a, a live wire culturally. I try to translate as literally as possible to the extent that the language can be stilted sometimes because I I have this feeling that if I change a single word, then I've become like a belligerent in the debate. I've taken a, I've taken a stance. But then I have, you know, I have, I have some deniability if I say I'm, I'm, I'm just a conduit for the, for the original <laughs> language. You know, you may as well just plug it in the Google Translate or something, uh, <laughs> which is obviously never the case. But with sensitive things, I think it, I, I think it's, it, I think literality is, if not the best way to approach it, at least a, a, a solid defense for the translator. It happens more often in reverse. I found so I only translate from, and, and this is standard practice, from Chinese to my native language, which is English. Often when I'm translating a work, uh, there is a characterization or a, a, a cultural trope or a plot point that makes that I, my ears turn red when I see it. And I email my client and I say, you, can't, you got you to change this. This, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is box office poison. And so when that occurs, I, I, I try to be really energetic in making it, if not more palatable, at, at, at least putting those sentiments in the mouth in a, in a, in a, I'm trying not to give those sentiments to an omniscient narrator, um, and make them sound as if they're, they're unchallengeable fact, but it's really tricky. Yeah. I can imagine. (laughs) The whole job's tricky, but uh, can can I speak a little bit about a current example of that? Definitely. Uh, so the book I'm translating now is called the longest day in Chang'an is my working title. Uh, no, it's not my working title. That's the title of the series on Amazon. Right. (laughs) 
Yeah, I, 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 I saw like the first episode of it. You know, my, my wife was like, really good. Yeah, I, I liked it. it. It's a it, it took it, it. It was a little hard to get into, I think, but I I always meant to get back to it because I do like historical fiction too. And she, my wife, described it as like you know Game of Thronesy and like and like a real historical setting. Uh, so yeah. she thought I would like it, and she really liked it too. And she watched in the original Chinese. But yeah, like I, I've always meant to get back to it. It's a, it's a fantastic hit, and it's a super high budget show. Um, there are a lot of barriers to entry if you don't. You know, it, I, I think of it as uh, in certain ways, not in terms of, of quality, but in, in terms of sort of how it treats history as kind of like Dan Brown. Hmm. Uh, did you read Dan Brown recently? I haven't. <laughs> I, I know <laughs> generally, like, yeah, he's the, what was the... The Vinci Code. The Vinci Code, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, mystery uh, kind of, several, adventure yeah. mystery kind of guy, right? Adventure mystery kind of guy, but mixed with sort of... Um, common knowledge about history mm. and so you know he, ins he liberally inserts these fictional elements into historically acknowledged narratives so he'll talk about you know now i'm not thinking of i'm thinking of national treasure did you ever see that movie i haven't seen it but i know of it yeah really okay you they know they steal the constitution or yeah they <laughs> exactly they steal the, nick cage steals the constitution right that's all i know <laughs> <laughs> or he stops the person whatever it is and, you know, they make references to all these real places. They're like, oh, there's like a vault under the Capitol. Or I, I, I don't know any of the details. These are all just speculative. And like, you know, if you research it, it turns out there is, in fact, a vault there or something. Like the author did their research. However, there is no, you know, Indiana Jones style, like, pedestal with a copy of the, of the Constitution on it. <laughs> um, and so in subtler instances, you have no idea what which parts are real and which aren't and trying to research it is a nightmare um if you don't have that background so that's a big barrier to entering this show um and this book so anyway my title is not the longest day in chang'an my title is the 12 watches of chang'an hmm. and its main antagonist is antagonists um so far are a group of of uh they're from they're from a, a historical polity called the Western or Latter, you know, the Latter Turkish Khaganate, which was you know a, a, a nomadic steppe tribe north of China, and their Chinese name Tujue has purely historical resonance. You know, it's like saying Hun in English. It has no. It doesn't make you think of anyone alive today, except maybe I, I, I don't know. Hun, I mean, when I say Hun, do you think of anyone? Attila the Hun, I guess. Uh, yeah, Attila. Right. Uh, but no group yeah. that's a majority in a country or even a minority in a country. It's not, it's not a, it's not a, it's no longer a, a designation of a group of people. However, in English, we call this, this step empire, um, or cognate, uh, the Turkic cognate because the people are, are, were ethnically Turkic. And so as soon as you see that in English, you, you recoil a little bit and you say this, this reads like it's talking about Turkish people. And I still don't have an answer for how, how to handle that in English. So if any of your listeners do, uh, <laughs> they can email me. Okay. Yeah, I wish, I wish I had a good answer for you. <laughs> <laughs> so there's stuff like that, that, you know, even in the original, it's not, it's not super problematic, but I haven't yet found a way to translate it that doesn't insert a weird kind of modern political parallel that doesn't exist in the source. So, yeah, I think it's it's generally harder going from Chinese to English than 
or no, from, yeah, going from Chinese to English, then trying to sensitively represent events of Chinese history in translation. Because generally, there are, there are in the original text, in the source, they're already pretty, the author's tiptoeing around them to begin with, but not the Turkic cognate. They speak very explicitly about their evil, sky-worshipping mm -hmm. ways. So I know in um, in English, uh, I mean English as a as a language is like continually evolving. So like we're always right. like making up new words for new concepts, and presumably Chinese is also doing the same as the we get more globalized world or whatever. So how do you yep. how do you keep up with like the changes in Chinese language? Do you watch a lot of tiny, you know, contemporary Chinese TV shows, read magazines? That what kind of thing do you do to keep up with just the language? I mostly read uh, criticism of my work on the Chinese internet. <laughs> <laughs> It's extremely colorful and a lot of new neologisms. <laughs> uh, what do I do? I I, I I try to keep up with the Chinese internet as much as I can. I find I find um, I, I love. I think Yahoo Answers is now defunct. I don't know if you ever went on that site, but there's a there's a Chinese equivalent called like Baidu .com, and people ask mm. just preposterous questions as they used to. <laughs> On Yahoo, Yahoo answers like, um, "Does anyone know of a an eyelash curler for particularly big big eyes?" Was one mm. question I saw recently. Then the answers were were filled with what must be new language because it ain't old. <laughs> <laughs> and I read books. I read literature. I try. Yeah. I'm a fan of of Moyen, who won the Nobel Prize. However many I, I have, I've lost track of the years since the pandemic. So. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Who knows? Eight, what, what, 12 what years ago, <laughs> three years ago, I have no idea, but he won the Nobel prize. Um, he has a wonderful kind of straightforward, um, even laconic style in a lot of his stories. And I think he's, a, he, his, his prose is like a masterclass in effective Chinese storytelling and style. As far as new language goes, a lot of it, is internet slang right right i think a precursor to new language in chinese is dialect which has been around since forever and is is rapidly evolving but not too much dialect makes it into widely published books some does and even in i i was i thought the the written language is always the same no matter what the dialect but is, is that not true well i mean the the, the characters are the same but mm. I mean, there are different usages. You know, even if you go from 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 what's, uh, the Mandarin spoken in, in Taiwan to standard Mandarin in China, which are are more similar than most things that are distinguished as as, as distinct dialects in mainland China. But there are usages that kind of parallel the difference between American and British English. Say, like I know what you're talking about, for the most right. part. Um, it's just a. a, a, a change in terminology so it's it's they're not using new characters for the most part so i don't know if this is gonna be easy for you to do but um i there was one translation that i thought was very strange in one of the books and i was interested to see what your take is on it um so okay. i'm gonna i won't give you the english one but i'm gonna paste the chinese in, in the chat I guess, like in a general sense, like how would you? I don't know how quickly you can do it, but like, like how would you mm -hmm. say that? And then I'll tell you like what the translation was and why I thought it was strange. So he's talking to a doctor, and he really appreciates. Who's talking? 
Oh, so it's a general talking to a doctor. Yeah, the general, okay. the first person uh, speaking, and then a, a, the doctor is, is responding. Okay. So, I mean, off the top of my head, I, I, I very much appreciate um, your unique way of thinking. Way is, is maybe a little generous. Your unique thoughts. And it could be that this is exactly, precisely the crux of the matter, that this truly is the crux of the matter. How am I doing so far? Good. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, the doctor responds. Thank you. We, boy, we we really we really all of us really are. Um, uh, I might say um, modern modern Neanderthals. I like Neanderthal. It says primitive people. Yeah. Or primeval people. Yuanshans most often means. So, the. The interesting part of it is the, so you got the first one pretty much, you know, like how, how he said it, but like the way he translated sure. the second one, he says, thank you. All of us are basically Flintstones. I was like, how, there's no way Chinese people know who the Flintstones are. I <laughs> like, love that trip. Is that Joel? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my, he's an artist. I love that. What's wrong with it? I was like, I know what that is, but like, like Chinese people aren't going to know, but I guess Chinese people aren't reading the English translation. No, they read, they read the Chinese version. <laughs> right. So yeah, I thought it was like when I was reading it, they just kind of took me out of it for a bit. I was like, that's a very interesting choice of like how to translate that. That because like when I went back to it, I was like, there's no way that translates to Chinese that way. And then like, anyway, that was a very interesting uh, use case. I thought. Yeah, no, nah, yeah, it, it must have made you how 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 far Hanna Barbera had penetrated the Chinese market. Yeah. <laughs> I asked my wife; she had she had no idea what the fun zones were, of the course. <laughs> I, I I love that choice. I love how energetic it is. <laughs> and as a translator, I love how I, I know I, I have this, I have a gut feeling how much fun it was for the translator to choose that word <laughs> um, and that usage. So to some extent, it was maybe a joke on Joel's part a little bit or, you know, <laughs> a way of amusing himself. But I, th I think I I... I really appreciate his unique way of thinking. <laughs> well done, that. <laughs> I'm, I'm quoting the general. I think the question is, how would Flintstones ever show up in a Chinese? There are a lot of phrases like this in English, a lot of metaphors. Yeah. You know, in English, we speak in poker metaphors a lot of the time or baseball metaphors. Right, right, right. And it's kind of baked into American English. Like we use these all the time when we're being informal. Um, what's an example of a poker metaphor? Like, like I, uh, uh, the company yeah. folded. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which means it closed. I think that must be a poker me a metaphor, but if it's not, there are many other examples. Like caught it on the river or something, something like that. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I often wonder when I'm translating Chinese texts, when would that part of the English language, which is super common, ever show up in a translation of a Chinese text if it weren't a deliberate choice of the translator? Like, how limited would English be if the translator didn't make joyful choices like Flintstone? Right. <laughs> um, yeah, and it, I it, think it, it conveys this his thought, right? Like, and the original thought, probably, you know, like that seems to be what he is trying to really convey in, in yeah. a very, very uh, colorful way. <laughs> colorful and pithy, and, and I like that it knocks you out of the text a little bit, too. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's it's kind of a wink toward the reader that maybe the original isn't quite so much. Even though modang, the word that, that means modern in the text, is a transliteration of modern from English. So mm -hmm. it also has that kind of 
there's something kind of artificial about how it feels in the text. And so I think, I think Flintstones is great. And I hope to see more translations that refer to Hanna-Barbera cartoons. <laughs> Do you have uh, ways people can find you or contact you if they have more questions for you or like, what are ways that you would like to engage with people? And then what are some things that you're working on that you want people to check out? Uh, how can they get in touch? With I, I just made a, a Reddit account under my real name, which is Adam Lanfear. So feel free to, I don't know, what, what, do what people do. I'd, you dox me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if people do it right. Uh, <laughs> uh, how else could you get in touch with me? Um, I don't have a Twitter. I don't have a Facebook. I have an Instagram, but it's mostly pictures of a hut I'm building in my backyard. So don't go to that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, email me. You know what? Email me at adam.lanfear at gmail.com. Whoever you are, I welcome any of your readers to do that. And then currently what I'm working on once more, um, I'm contracted through the, the heat death of the universe to translate long-form historical fiction novels. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've just signed my life away to these contracts. Um, and I'm enjoying it very much, But I and I'm, I'm blessed to have so much work. Uh, but it's daunting when I think about the, just the pure word count in front of me. But I love both the works. They're both by an author called Ma Boyong, um, who's extraordinarily popular in China and more or less unheard of in the States. I think a, a short sci-fi story of his was included in, do you know the anthology Invisible Planets? Sounds familiar, but... Okay, so that it, it's an anthology of kind of lesser-known sci-fi authors, Chinese sci-fi authors' works. Uh, Ken Liu translated the whole thing. Oh, I yeah, you know, I did read. I re, I read the the Leosian story out of that one. That was the one where um, about the energy, right? Where you kind of they kind of jump in the future, or he gets calls from himself in the in the future, right? Is that the one? No, I didn't read that one. Oh, <laughs> I read the I read the Maboyong one because I was just beginning to, to translate the stories, and it it was it was this touching little sort of nineteen eighty four ish vignette of of surveillance and uh, protest, um, and it's a nice intro to his work. Anyway. That, I think that's the only, uh, based on nothing, I think that's the only work of his that's been uh, thoroughly and professionally translated into English so far. So I am doing the rest of them. Uh, not the short work so much, but the, but his long-form novels. So the first one, again, is called, or my working my working title is The Twelve Watches of Chang'an. Um, you can check out a high-budget, fascinating TV adaptation. It's available on Amazon Prime. The title there is the longest day in Chagan. I'm also working on a book of his called Gudong. Uh, my working title is the the Bureau of Antiquities, and it is about the 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 thrilling trade and fields of authentication authentication and forgery in the world of Chinese antiquities. Uh, and that that one takes place in a in a very lush. Uh, early '90s Beijing setting, which you can tell by the by the enormous cell phones they keep referring to in the narrative, among other things. So read those. All right. Well, thank you very much for for joining us. I really appreciated our conversation. Can you use any of it? <laughs> use all of it. It's great. All of it. <laughs> all of it. <laughs> okay. Good. Um, but yeah, th thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Um, I just want to say I've never been interviewed before. So. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully this is easy enough and uh, yeah, for conversation. I, I was so nervous going, I haven't been that <laughs> nervous in, in 
either three or 12 years. I can't remember. Oh, you're great. Great. <laughs> I think it'd be very interesting to, to our list because like our listeners will be more generally, um, it, yeah, more generally into the world that remembers Earth past, but I think also like are interested in Chinese culture and other Chinese stories in general. So I think oh, great. The, this world is very close to like a lot of our, our core interests. So I think a lot of people will be interested in, in these books and you know, the, either the books or the TV show of The, the Longest Day in Chang'an or any of that stuff. So yeah, I, I think it's interesting to me and hopefully interesting to uh, our listeners as well. All right, well, thank you very much again. I really appreciate it. Uh, I don't have a good way to end it, but <laughs> just That's thank fine. you very much. <laughs> Dan, you're, you're very polished. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and I'm, I'm, I'm flattered that you wanted to in the first place. Definitely, definitely appreciate it. Thank you very much. Stay in touch. Bye now. Thank you.